In the hand of the Lord there is a cup full of mixture. Psalm 75, verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. What is this cup full of mixture the children of God are given to drink? Speaking of his death on Golgotha's cross, Jesus said in John eighteen eleven. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Matthew twenty six forty two. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. I found out what was in that cup. It is the cup of life, and it is full of mixture. It has the sweet and the bitter. It has health and sickness. It has riches and poverty. It has life and death. And we are directed to and must drink ye all of it. As children of God, we are not exempt from life's reverses that are found in the cup, but rather to the contrary. Psalms thirty-four nineteen: Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. God delivers us us, uh, from them all. Even death itself is swallowed up in victory, the victory of the blessed hope, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Consider the power of Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What a magnificent promise. However, keep in mind, A situation doesn't always first appear to be good. Rest assured that good it is. On the other hand, the wicked also have a cup from which to drink, but their cup is not a cup of mixture. Revelation 14.10, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Their cup is full of the eternal wrath of God. Imagine, we choose which cup we will drink from, but without exception, we must drink it all. Which cup are you drinking from? Have you been born again, literally born a second time, this time of the Spirit of God? At this juncture, a cup change takes place. Will today be your day of salvation, where all your sin and shame are expunged in all, and I mean all of Satan's bondage is broken? The choice is yours, and it is a choice of cups. Your salvation is just minutes away. Follow this simple prompt into eternal, really eternal life. Click on the Further with Jesus. For childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God, now for today's subject. God said, Job 41, verse 1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? God said, Numbers chapter 5, verse 29, This is the law of jealousies, when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband, and is defiled. God said, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Man said, paraphrasing one of evolution's leaders, if dinosaurs walk contemporaneously with man, evolutionists are going to have to take up truck driving. Now the record. Truck driving? For a group that doesn't know where they came from, 
why they are here or where they are going, truck driving would not be a good career choice. It is apparent that the critics of God's holy word have never approached the scriptures with ear bowed down, for if they did, their criticisms would convert to praise. There is no book like God's book found in the majority text authorized King James Version. It is absolutely true. All the books ever written must bow down before this book of books, even as every knee must bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of all. Revelation 19.13 speaks of this glorious Redeemer, and His name is called the Word of God. Yes, every book and every word and every knee will bow. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature 952, that will again prove the full and perfect inerrancy of God's holy book. All of these powerful features are archived here in text and streaming audio for the edification of the saints and as ammunition in the battle for the souls of men. Every Thursday Eve, God willing, they grow by one. Thank you for coming. May God's countenance shine upon you in your house. This is the 32nd installment of the God Said, Man Said, Jot and Tittle series, where we list in fairly rapid fashion one God-proof after another. This feature houses God-proofs 236 to 242. How beautiful it is. God proof number 236, Job chapter 41, and various verses. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride. Shut up together is with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. By his niecings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and the flame goeth out of his mouth. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings they purify themselves. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. Upon the earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. If man and dinosaur, the supreme icon of evolution, walk this earth together, then evolution is vanquished. Until 1841, the world knew these colossal creatures whose fossilized remains were just beginning to be discovered as dragons, leviathan, behemoth, fiery flying serpents, the cockatrice, and serpents as designated in the Bible. In 1841, the name dinosaur, meaning terrible lizard, was coined by Sir Richard Owen, who, by the way, believed that these giant lizards were created by God. These terrible reptiles lived on land and in the sea. Donald DeYoung records the following in his book, 365 Fascinating Facts. April 23, 1977. A Japanese fishing trawler netted a strange object near New Zealand this week. It was the decaying body of a sea monster, 32 feet long and weighing two tons. 
After a brief study and photographs, the carcass was discarded overboard. Evidence now suggests that the animal may have been a plesiosaur-type marine reptile. However, the plesiosaur is commonly thought to have died out 65 million years ago. Perhaps instead, there are isolated communities of plesiosaur-type animals still living in the vast oceans, end of quote. One of the world's most recorded accounts in centuries past is that of a man's encounter with giant reptiles. The Chinese calendar has a designated creature that represents each month, such as the pig, the rat, and the dragon. Of the twelve creatures, eleven still walk with us today, and one we dig for in the fossil record. Or maybe some still live in the sea. The book Dragons, published, uh, published by Master Books, lists uh, 13 English towns during the 11th to 13th centuries that reported encounters with these terrible lizards. They are Dornock, Kirkton, Wantley, Oseth, Bistrine, uh, Carmapton, St. Leonard's Forest, Benver, Anwick, Ludham, Burris, Kingston, and Helston. Dinosaurs and man lived contemporaneously just like the Bible says. God proof 237, Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled, or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled, then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her the tenth part of an ephah of barley mill. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head, and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering, and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causeth the curse. And the priest shall charge her by an oath, and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing. And the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels, to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water. And he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter water that causeth the curse, and the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Then the priest shall take the jealousy offering out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the offering before the Lord and offer it upon the altar. 
And the priest shall take an handful of the offering, even the memorial thereof, and burn it upon the altar, and afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. And when he hath made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that, if she be defiled, and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her, and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thighs shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among her people. And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then she shall be free, and shall conceive seed. This is the law of jealousies, when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband, and is defiled. Or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and he be jealous over his wife, and shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity, and this woman shall bear her iniquity. How could such a thing be? Some very bizarre situations are printed between the covers of God's beautiful book, even fantastical accounts, that carnal academics ridicule and malign, but they are true and righteous altogether. Keep in mind that God does not do magic, but has created all things by wisdom and understanding. For decades, God said, man said, has searched in literature and the sciences for answers to the adultery test in Numbers chapter 5. Certainly, human psychology plays a critical role in these mysterious verses, uh, excuse me, like the body's chemical creation of the stress hormone cortisol, which would be instigated by outside stressors interacting in some way, at least uh, psychologically, with the bitter waters, as well as with the foreign sperm in the body and more. Could there be any science that says yes? Some of Jewish tradition concerning the adultery test was reported in the following excerpt from Wikipedia. This trial consisted of the wife having to drink a specific potion administered by the priest. The text does not specify the amount of time needed for the potion to take effect. Nineteenth-century scholars suspected it was probably intended to have a fairly immediate effect. The Mishnah mentions there could also be a suspension of the ordeal for one, two, or three years if she has an acquittal. Mamanes records the traditional rabbinical view. Her belly swells first, and then her thigh ruptures and she dies. Others maintain that since the word thigh is often used in the Bible as a euphemism for various reproductive organs, in this case it may mean the uterus, the placenta, or an embryo, and the woman would survive. <clears throat> Excuse me, end of quote. Our search for the science to support Numbers 5 just recently met with success. A microbiologist requesting anonymity due to workplace issues weighed in with the following eye-opening dissertation. The water of bitterness begins with water, not wine, which was used for ceremonial washings but never normally drunk. If it wasn't already contaminated by airborne bacteria... Adding dust from the tabernacle floor would ensure that it was inoculated with bacteria. The alcohol in wine would prohibit the growth of bacteria. Water would support it. Of greatest importance would be those bacteria that can survive in prolonged dry conditions by forming endospores. Once introduced into the water, they could germinate, but would probably be limited in their growth by a lack of nutrients. Nutrients would be added when the priest scraped the curses off of the papyrus roll into the water. That would add cellulose, sugar, charcoal, and gum, the most likely components of the ink used to write on the roll. It is probably significant that the water of bitterness was made in a clay pot 
rather than the bronze or gold vessels that were commonly used in the tabernacle. The heavy metals in bronze would kill any bacteria that were introduced into the water. Clay does not contain such antibacterial metals. The bacteria which is most intriguing in this context is Clostridium uh, perfringens, the cause of gaseous gangrene. This bacteria forms endospores which can survive indefinitely in dust. It is also a common cause of food poisoning with a short incubation period of 6 to 24 hours so symptoms would appear quickly. If the bacteria lodged in the colon, stomach, gas production could cause the swelling of the abdomen. This bacteria produces a toxin which causes tissue necrosis. Gangrene evolves tissue necrosis. Necrosis in the area of the rectum could spread to the adjacent uterus, bladder, and vagina, causing an obstetric fistula. Obstetric fistula is often seen in girls who become pregnant before their bodies are capable of carrying a baby to term. The uterus, rectum, and urinary bladder all fuse together, producing a constant dribbling of urine, plus or minus feces from the vagina, and a stench <coughs> noticeable by others. Interestingly, the word translated bitterness comes from a root meaning trickle. Could the water of bitterness refer to the trickle of urine plus or minus feces down the legs of the guilty woman? It is unlikely that the water itself was bitter. This very visible sign of guilt is reminiscent of the visible spots of leprosy. Both resulted in banishment from the community. That plus infertility would be bitter indeed. End of quote. You've just read a scientific explanation for God's strange instructions concerning the test for adultery, but our scientist was only able to supply half of the answer. The rest of the mystery is offered to the rest of the God-said, man-said family to discover. Numbers 5.28 says, And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. How did the bitter water bring judgment to the guilty and the same bitter water bring vindication and even pregnancy to the guiltless? One suggestion was that stress is a common inhibitor of pregnancy. After this very stressful ordeal was completed, could the huge sigh of relief and rehabilitation of the damaged marital union have played a part? Keep in mind, emotions such as guilt, fear, and shame play a heavy role in disease. The innocent woman had none of these. God proof number 238, Genesis chapter 41, verses 41 through 45. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler of all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnapaniah, and he gave him to wife Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Many archaeologists, historians, and Egyptologists, and more, have challenged the Bible's accuracy concerning Israel's Joseph, the Israelites' long tenure in Egypt, their subsequent bondage and miraculous escape led by Moses, but the wheels have fallen off their bus. 
The headline of ScienceNews.org on November 19, 2016 reads, Oldest alphabet identified as Hebrew. A few paragraphs follow. The world's earliest alphabet inscribed on stone slabs at several Egyptian sites was an early form of Hebrew, a controversial new analysis concludes. Israelites living in Egypt transformed that civilization's hieroglyphics into Hebrew 1.0 more than 3,800 years ago, at a time when the Old Testament describes Jews living in Egypt, says archaeologist and epigrapher Douglas Petrovich of uh, Wilfrid Lauer University in Waterloo, Canada. Hebrew speakers seeking a way to communicate in writing with other Egyptian Jews simplified the Pharaoh's complex hieroglyphic writing system into 22 alphabetic letters. Petrovis proposed on, uh, proposed on November 17 at the annual meeting of the American Schools of Oriental Research. That's a highly controversial contention among scholars of the Bible and ancient civilizations. Many argue, despite what's recounted in the Old Testament, that Israelites did not live in Egypt as long ago as long ago as proposed by Petrovich. Biblical dates for the Israelites to stay in Egypt are unreliable, they say. Petrovich says his big break came in January of 2012 uh, while conducting research at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. He came across the word Hebrews in a text from 1874 B.C. that includes the earliest known alphabetic letter. According to the Old Testament, Israelites spent 434 years in Egypt from 1876 B.C. to 1442 B.C. Petrovich then combined previous identifications of some letters in the ancient alphabet with his own identifications of disputed letters to peg the script as Hebrew. Armed with the entire fledgling alphabet, he translated 18 Hebrew inscriptions from three Egyptian sites. Several biblical figures turn up in the translated inscriptions, including Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his half-brothers and then became a powerful political figure in Egypt, Joseph's wife, Asenath, and Joseph's son, Manasseh, a leading figure in a turquoise mining business that involved early trips to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt, is also mentioned, Petrovich says, end of quotes. The headline on dailywire.com reads, Earliest alphabet ever identified as Hebrew substantiates biblical narrative. Excerpt follows. A new report states that the oldest alphabet in the world is Hebrew and substantiates biblical claims that the Hebrews indeed lived in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. End of quotes. God's word is true. Every jot and every tittle. God proved 239, Joshua 10, 1 through 5. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jophia, king of Lachish, and unto Deber, king of Eglon, saying, 
Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together, and went up, they and all their host, and encamped before Gibeon, and made war against it. Skeptics have amassed against the Bible from page 1, verse 1. They deny creation, the Garden of Eden, the fall, uh, the Noah and the global flood, the Tower of Babel, and God's confounding of the languages, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses and the Exodus, giants, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and so much more. Yet all these issues are certified true beyond any reasonable doubt. Even in this light, they continue to carp and malign. Was there a Moses? Was there a Joshua? And did he lead Israel in the conquering of Canaan land? Several pages from John Argubright's book, Bible Believers Archaeology, Historical Evidence That Proves the Bible Follows. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses handed over the leadership of the Hebrew nation to Joshua, who brings the children of Israel into the Promised Land. According to the Bible, after entering Canaan, Joshua had to go to war with the inhabitants of the land. There is an amazing piece of evidence to support this. A letter has been found that was written by Abdi Heba, governor of Jerusalem, to an unnamed Pharaoh requesting aid from Egypt in fighting the approaching Hebrews. The letter states the following, Why do you not hear my call for help? All the governors are lost. The king, my lord, does not have a single governor remaining. Let the king send troops and archers, or the king will have no lands left. All the lands of the king are being plundered by the Habaru, Hebrews. If archers are here by the end of the year, then the lands of my lord the king will be saved. But if the archers are not sent, then the lands of the king my lord will be lost. This is the El Armana letter, number 286. The Bible states in Joshua chapter 10, verse 26, that Joshua defeated these kings, captured them, and killed them, including the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek. Other letters requesting aid from Egypt have also been discovered that were written during this same time frame as well. These letters are part of what are known as the Armana Tablets. The following letter is from a man named Shurdada, governor of Gath, who mentions the chief of the Hebrews, a possible reference to Joshua himself. It states, May the king my lord know that the chief of the Aparu, the Hebrews, has invaded the lands which your God has given me, but I have attacked him. Also let the king my lord know that none of my allies have come to my aid. It is only I and Abdi Heba who fight against the Aparu chief. These and many other Armana letters from the same time frame mention cities that had either fallen to or were fighting against the advancing Hebrews. These cities match exactly with the cities Israel had captured as listed in the book of Joshua as well as Judges chapter 1. The cities and lands include Lachish, Gezer, Ashkelon, Hazor, Gath, Kela, Akko, Bethlehem, Gaza, Jerusalem, Aksfa, Carmel, Bethshin, Megiddo, Shechem, Makeda, Ajalon, Zorah, as well as a mention of the land of Canaan itself. So there is no doubt that the Aparu or Habaru mentioned in the Amarna letters were the biblical Hebrews, end of quotes, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and on. 
God proof number 240, Psalms 9, verse 12. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them. He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. God makes inquisition for innocent blood that was shed. And he says to Cain, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Nearly 6,000 years before man knew the reason why, the creator of the universe said that blood could cry out from the earth. Today, it would be commonly called forensic science, and the voice of shed blood can be heard. DNA analysis was first used in a criminal case in 1987. Since that time, its terms and scientific techniques have become common household knowledge. DNA information can be extracted from blood cells, semen, skin, and hair cells. Radford University criminology professor T.W. Burke said, Forensic evidence can last forever. According to Burke, criminal investigators prefer real evidence, meaning forensic, rather than eyewitnesses because forensic evidence is more reliable. Burke continued, Real evidence is any evidence that is tangible. It's the best evidence that investigators strive to get. Do you remember the 1954 murder case in which Dr. Sam Shepard was convicted of murdering his wife? A long-standing television series, The Fugitives, was fashioned after the Shepard case. A major motion picture called by the same name was also made. Ten years after the initial trial, Shepard won the right to a retrial. After ten years of serving hard time, he was acquitted. Yet many still thought Dr. Shepard was simply getting away with murder. In 1970, Dr. Sam Shepard died at the age of 46. In 1997, the doctor's son sued the state of Ohio to once and for all clear his father's name. A vial of dried blood from the crime scene was discovered, and a DNA analysis was conducted to establish whether the assumed third person was present and complicit at the time of Mrs. Shepard's death. The blood has a voice. It's true blood can cry out from the earth. Only the creator of the universe could have known this truth over 6,000 years ago. God proof. Number 241, Psalms 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. The world's scholars claim that if there is a God, he doesn't interact in the affairs of men. Very dark days are approaching. We will need our childlike faith functioning at the highest level. I once heard a believer say that there was something actually faster than the speed of light. He said that something was prayer, and he was right. Harnessing the power of prayer in our understanding and in the new tongue, praying in the Spirit, are in fact abilities to harness the power of God itself. Then watching God's hand in real time in the little and big is a marvel of marvels. Several years ago, during a Wednesday night prayer meeting, a prayer request was made concerning a missing garbage can. Brother Carl, who was in charge of solving the problem, discovered that it had been missing for some months. He had called waste management several times, but still had no resolution. His request was that God would help us resolve the problem. Many would find such a request ridiculous. Friday morning, two days later, our brother who made the request and who lives eight miles from the church was backing out of his driveway. He and his wife were going out to run some errands. A truck coming in the opposite direction was moving slowly, and the driver was waving to Carl. 
The truck pulled up alongside Brother Carl, for he was lost and needed some direction. After Carl directed him, he noticed an advertisement on the truck's door that read, Waste Management. Brother Carl explained the problem with uh, that uh, we were having with the garbage can and this fellow's company. The truck driver took Carl's phone number and the address of the church, which was eight miles away, and said we would have a solution in two hours. Around two hours later, Brother Carl received a phone call from the refuse company. They apologized for the inconvenience and replaced the church's garbage can at no charge. What a beautiful miracle, a miracle that had to happen in a five-second window of time. The supernatural coordination was spectacular. One, Brother Carl and his wife had to get ready to go out and leave their home at a specific time. Two, a waste management company driver had to drive past Carl's house, also at a time specific, and he needed to be lost so that he could flag Carl down in order to ask directions. Number three, God had to coordinate the waste management employee's time to include the time he arose that morning, the time he took at Dunkin' Donuts, the time he spent at the local traffic light, and the particular call he would have to make that morning near Brother Carl's house. This was all coordinated to facilitate a five-second window of time and to answer a prayer made the previous Wednesday evening a miracle and real time. Dark times are ahead for the world. Let your childlike faith light the way. God said, number 242, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God said, man said, uses a four-step proof formula to establish that the Bible is the inerrant truth. One of the four steps in the formula is prophecy. Here, prophetic proclamations made in the Bible are cited and fulfillment noted. Often, we employ the laws of probability to demonstrate the unnatural nature of the prophecy, meaning its supernatural bona fides. For example, if a prophecy whose chances of having a man not only make it, but also have the prophecy come to pass, is one in five billion, it could also be said that the odds were four billion, nine hundred ninety-nine million, nine hundred ninety-nine thousand, nine hundred ninety-nine chances out of five billion that it was God. In the book 365 Fascinating Facts About Jesus, Robert Strand calculated the odds that the nearly 250 prophecies made in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah could have been fulfilled in one person, even Jesus Christ, as being one chance and the number one followed by 90 zeros. No other person in history has been so foretold as the humble carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. Strand then writes under the heading, What Would You Do?, describing a scene from a London club room. A number of years ago, a noted group of educators and philosophers had gathered in a club room in a prominent London hotel. The conversation took a surprising turn during a discussion of some of the most illustrious figures of the past. One of those present, uh, presently suddenly asked, Gentlemen, what would we do if Milton were to enter this room? Ah, replied one of the members of the circle, we would give him such an ovation as should compensate for the late recognition that was not accorded to him by the people of his day. And if Shakespeare entered, asked another, we would arise and crown him master of the phrase, was the answer from another. 
and if Einstein were to enter, ask somebody else. Applaud and congratulate him on the achievements made possible because of his theories. And if Jesus Christ were to enter, one more asked. I think, said Charles Lamb, following an intense silence, we would all fall on our faces. End of quote. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, God's word is true and righteous altogether, every jot and every tittle. God said, Job 41.1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? God said, Numbers 5.29, This is the law of jealousies, when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband, and is defiled. God said, Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Man said, paraphrasing one of evolution's leaders. If dinosaurs walked contemporaneously with man, evolutionists are going to have to take up truck driving. Now you have the record. <laughs> <laughs> 